Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Saturday mornings at 8.30, Sunday afternoons at 2.30. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am... uh, Always so glad when this time comes at that time of the day when you and I can get together and hopefully we can each get something in our hands that's warm, like a cup of tea or coffee, and just kind of dig into our Bibles. And we're going to have a great hour coming up. Dr. Michael Heiser will be joining me. And frankly, I can't wait. He's got uh, quite a list of credentials. I don't want to read too many of them, but he is the scholar in residence at uh, Logos. Bible software in Bellingham, Washington. And if you are a fan of that uh, uh, software, you know exactly how wonderful it is. And I've been using it for years and I love it. So uh, we're going to take your questions. We're going to talk about uh, probably things like the divine council and angels and and spiritual uh, beings. And if you are have a question, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. Again, it's a text only, 877-933-2484. Let's take 60 seconds, and then we'll bring Michael on. If you're in need of prayer or would like to pray for others, we have a helpful resource for you in PrayerWorks. When you go to MyFaithRadio.com and click on the PrayerWorks link, you'll see numerous prayer requests listed. Click on Add a Prayer to submit your request or pray for the requests listed, and then click on I Prayed for the corresponding request. Experience the power of believers praying for each other through prayer works. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. The way in which he showers his love upon people is not a little trickle spurting out now and then, but he has poured out his love. He has showered his love upon us in order that we might shower his love upon those who seem the most unlikely and undeserving recipients of it. Show me how to spend a life. Each day, together, growing in our faith, Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. Really glad to be inviting Dr. Michael Heiser back to the program. He's one of my very favorite guests because I learned so much every time he comes on. He has uh, written a whole number of books, and we have uh, talked about all of them on the air, I think. And anything he writes about, I want to learn more about. Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me back. All right, true confession, Michael. So I go to the Bible Project because I love that website, and I like to look at their mm-hmm. work over there. And I'm watching these videos on the spiritual beings, and I thought, I think I'm watching the first one. I'm watching the first one, and I'm thinking, all right, Tim and John, they're smart guys, but this is, this is Michael Heiser smart. I honestly had that thought when I was watching the first video. Then it rolls to the credits, and it said, script consultant Michael Heiser. Yeah, <laughs> I'm everywhere. <laughs> but seriously, yeah, I thought, this is, this is Michael Heiser smart. And I watched all of them, and they're fantastic. Well, Tim and John, I mean, I love the Bible Project, too. They just do wonderful stuff. And it was, I got to visit their secret location 
uh, in Portland, and you know, they they were nice enough to just sort of walk me through the process of what they they do, and we spent an afternoon there, you know, consulting. I think they did half a dozen uh, videos. There are six you know, of them. Were, yep. You know, dipping yep. into my gone, yeah, my content. I've gone through all of them. Yeah, it was that was fun. Yeah, and they had some real, you know, Tim had some really good insights too um, that I I found personally helpful. That down the road, I know I'm gonna the people who read my stuff will see, you know, and I will credit him for a few things. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about um, just spiritual beings, just to get things started. I think one of the first things that I think you explained, or they explained, but you helped with them is. The whole idea of Elohim and how that is a uh, actually a title and not a name, and it really refers to all spiritual beings as well as to the Creator God. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a, it's a label that a biblical writer would use to identify any member, you know, of the spiritual world. You know, a, a being that is by nature disembodied, which is why you know the, the term shows up when in First Samuel twenty eight thirteen. When uh, <clears throat> you know the the spirit of Samuel appears, you know the we, the whole medium at Endor uh, mm-hmm. episode where Saul wants to talk to Samuel and and the medium does whatever she does. The narrative doesn't actually tell us what she she does, but she gets freaked out by the result. You know she she knows who it is and she says, "I see an Elohim coming up out of the ground." And Saul says, "Well, what does he look like?" You know. And, and then they both collectively identify him as Samuel, and uh, she thinks, you know, it's a trick, you know, to put her under pain of death. And of course, it's not. But, you know, you, you don't expect Elohim to show up in a context like that. But it, it's it's logical if you understand the term again as just a label you would use for any spiritual being. And so when you have multiple Elohim, like in Psalm 82, verse one, you know, it's it's not polytheism as moderns think of it. It's not polytheism, even as an ancient person, you know, would have parsed that. It just means that in the spirit world, there are lots of entities, lots of Elohim. But for the biblical writers, only one of those Elohim is Yahweh. And they, all the others are by definition lesser and contingent. And so our theology that we, you know, grew up on as Christians, that, you know, there's one God who is omniscient omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign creator. All that is correct. It just doesn't derive from a single word like Elohim. We, we get that theology from the way the biblical writers describe this particular Elohim and simultaneously deny those attributes to other Elohim. Mm-hmm. And Michael, what would the term uh, be in the New Testament? Yeah, the, the Greek equivalent of Elohim uh, is theos, you know, God, deity. Okay. Uh, which is a, a, a again a very generic term. It, it's a term that if you looked it up in a Greek lexicon, it, you would learn that it's not just applied to figures in in Greek thought like Zeus or Apollo, but it, it's actually somewhat elastic. Again, and that I guess shouldn't surprise us. Uh, again, because it refers to that which is not human and part of this you know spiritual supernatural world. And God must be okay with sharing that title of Elohim with other spiritual beings like the divine council and the sons of God. And, um, do I, do I have that right? Yeah. Well, like in the first chapter of my angels book, I mean, what you're, what you're hinting at and and treading into is the, the terminology problem. 
you know, that we have a very limited vocabulary just because it's English, because of our tradition. Mm-hmm. If you actually go through the, the terminology in the Old Testament, and again, I do this in the first chapter of the Angels book, you have essentially three buckets. <clears throat> there are terms that describe what a member of the heavenly host or the spiritual world is. And one of those is Elohim. Another one would be like spirits. Okay. Just tells you what it is. And then the second bucket would be, there are rank and hierarchy terms like sons of God. That's actually a, a hierarchical term that's drawn from the language of ancient Near Eastern royalty, royal courts, as it were. And the, the reason why scripture uses the court metaphor for God is because God is king. He's king of everything. And so to talk about that, they will use this kind of terminology. And then the third bucket are essentially roles or job descriptions. You know, angel is one of those. It's a messenger. Uh, you know, you cherubim, throne guardian. I mean, you, you get this kind of terminology. And, and God, you know, shares, you know, some of that, like Elohim, he is a member of the spiritual world and by nature doesn't have a body. He's, you know, he transcends all those things. But there are terms he will not share. Things like creator, most mm-hmm. high, you know. Right. I mean, it, 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 it strips away the ambiguity uh, pretty quickly, you know, when you get into passages that describe who Yahweh, the God of Israel, is, and then compare him to others and others to him. Uh, this is when you get these phrases like, there's none beside me, there's none like me. You know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's just no one that's comparable to the God of Israel. And so our theology is intact, but we often can get confused. Like if we're trying to do word studies and we actually penetrate the English a little bit, you run into these things and it's like, boy, that's just kind of weird. Like, why, why would they do that? And it takes a little bit of thought to unravel that. Mm-hmm. Michael, I've got a lot of questions myself, and I've got questions already coming in from listeners. So let me uh, get one of those out for you. Um, this is coming from a listener named Nancy. She said, the Bible talks about angels engaging in evil with humans in Sodom and Gomorrah. I was wondering why they are called angels rather than demons or fallen angels. Well, the angels there aren't the perpetrators. So I think I think that's a bit of a misreading of the passage. There are two angels there uh, in Genesis 19. They were with God himself, who had appeared as a man to Abraham in Genesis 18, along with these other two. And those two are sent to Sodom to punish the city. They're not participating in the in the evil. Uh, they're, they're the ones who pull Lot into the house, you know, Lot you know, offers his daughter to the men of Sodom who've surrounded the house and they pull him in and say, look, you know, we, we have a better solution here. So they strike, them. they strike everybody blind and, and enable Lot and his daughters to escape. So they're not, they're not the perpetrators. They're actually there to judge evil and not uh, participate with it. All right. Appreciate that answer. Uh, let me take a little break. And I also just want to let all the listeners know if you have a question about uh, spiritual beings or angels or whatever you have in that category, let us know. Michael would be more than happy to answer your question. Text message is the only way to go today, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. show. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest, and boy, am I excited to have him on the show again. He's the author of The Unseen Realm, and he also Supernatural, the 60-second scholar. He's got a lot of great, great 
material. If you go to his website, drmsh.com, drmsh.com. So, Michael, here's another question from a listener. Fallen angels, can they ever be redeemed? And does this cause intellectual conflict for other angels in heaven? (laughs) The the second part of that question is really, I think, even the more interesting part. I think Hebrews 2 specifically uh, rules out an opportunity uh, for repentance or maybe inclusion in the plan of salvation would be better. And that's because uh, Hebrews 2 links the plan of salvation to the incarnation, uh, specifically, you know, creating the set of circumstances that salvation is offered to humans because the second person of the Trinity became human for that purpose. He didn't become an angel or, you know, whatever an angel might be uh, in, in corporeal form. No, he became a human. And so that is part and parcel of the redemptive plan. So that I would answer the question that way, that they're, they're not included in the plan of salvation when they rebelled. Again, they, you know, God decided them to hold them to a greater accountability. And the, the plan to rectify what was going on, uh, what happened in Eden and, and thereafter, is specifically aimed at humanity. Uh, how, how they parse that is kind of interesting because we, we're told a few times in Job, uh, we're given these sort of oblique statements like God doesn't trust his holy ones. <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 you know, we don't really, I mean, Job in terms of it, of its writing, you know, is going to be a, a, a bit later than, than a number of things in scripture. Uh, it's set in an early time, probably, you know, the pre-patriarchal time, but, but as far as it's writing, the Hebrew that's used there is later. Um, it's interesting because, you know, why would he say that? Why, why would that be God's assessment? I think there's two reasons. One, well, they, they don't have the best track record. They don't have a perfect track record. Uh, and also because they aren't him. They're lesser. And so the, the potential is there for failure, for mistake, or rebellion. Not People assume that post-fall and post, you know, really post the antediluvian world, that this can't happen again. But that's just an assumption. That's a Christian tradition. There's nothing in Scripture that actually says that, that there's no possibility a member of the heavenly host uh, could rebel. Um, so I, I leave it there. I think that, that Scripture leaves that door open and, again, gives us this assessment of the, the possible fallibility of these beings. Uh, I do agree, though, Michael, that second part of the question is kind of provocative. Does this cause intellectual yeah. conflict for other angels in heaven? I do love that part. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, does you know you could parse the question too as do they look at this and feel, if we can use that terminology, feel for their their former comrades right. or, or brethren or whatever, you right. know. And, and again, all of that would be would be speculative. What we know from certainly from Second Temple Jewish literature in the New Testament's part of that, and you get hints of it in the New Testament, not as overt as some of that uh, like Dead Sea Scroll material, is that God sent certain angels to punish the fallen ones. So they actually were agents of condemnation. And there's no hint in those cases where they're like, oh, please, do I have to? You know, this is a terrible job. No, they obey. They obey. And so I think, again, we have to, we're left with silence, you know, on an issue like that. Mm -hmm. Another question from a listener, are there female angels, referring to Zechariah 5.9, that says, 
Then I looked up, and there were before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Yeah, the the problem with this, and this is common, you know, to use Zechariah five to have a you know female angels. I mean, I don't I don't think there's a theological issue with with that, but the text that doesn't actually justify that because. If you actually read the passage, verse 5, then the angel who talked with me came forward and said, lift up your eyes, and then, you know, Zechariah sees these two women. The women are never called angels. There's actually an angel in the scene aside from the women. So if Zechariah wanted us to believe or think that these two women were angels, why didn't he just call them that, you know, like the other character in the scene? So there's a disconnect there. The, the, The women imagery actually goes in the larger context, that these two women are good, they're loyal to the God of Israel, and they're dealing with the woman sitting in the basket who's evil. And so a lot of commentators figure this is why we have, you know, contrasting imagery here. We, we want to contrast these women, these servants of, of the Lord with, with, you know, the people who aren't the servants of the Lord, symbolized by the woman in the basket. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, Michael, here's another mm-hmm. question, follow-up to an earlier comment you made I'm confused about the sorcerer that called Samuel up. I thought that sorcery is a wicked thing biblically, so why can someone call up a godly man's spirit? Is it even true well, today that a sorcerer can call up a dead spirit? Well, the, the, the commands in the Old Testament are pretty clear. You should not do this. Uh, I take the commands as being serious. In other words, they're not like, a command that would say, thou shalt not fly. Okay, I won't flap my arms and fly then. I'm good with that one. Yeah. No, the, the commands are given because it does work, because there are spirit beings. There is a spiritual world. And human efforts to contact the, the other side without using the means that God ordained in the Old Testament, things like the Orium and the Thummim, okay? If you're not using those means, you don't know what you're going to get. You can be deceived and tricked and turned to idolatry and all this other stuff. And so God forbids it. So if he forbids it, it must be possible to do. And so you have this medium at Endor, and of course Saul has gotten rid of these people, but somehow he knows that this one's left, knows where to find her, and uses her ability, deceives her. She doesn't know that he's Saul right away. And yeah, you know, she can do this. She's not supposed to. I mean, you know, God doesn't you know, demand this of her. But I think what, what we have to read here is that God in his providence allows Samuel to make contact with Saul and Samuel repeats the judgment on Saul. We, we, that's another reason why we know it's Samuel, because he repeats the judgment that happened earlier in the book in 1 Samuel 3 about the destiny of Saul and the house of Eli and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I think we have to to look at this as, you know, God not prodding the woman to sin or do evil. You know, he's not behind her, giving her a little push, you know. It's, she does this and it's like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to teach Saul and this woman a lesson you know, by what, what's going to transpire here. You know, I haven't changed my mind, Saul. You're still condemned. Mm-hmm. Michael, here's another question from a listener. When we wrestle against principalities, what does that look like? You know, I really, I, I'm, I have to admit, I'm kind of influenced by how I think about Daniel 10 here, because Daniel 10, and of course, Deuteronomy 32 is the is the backdrop for Paul's principalities and powers. I talk a lot about this in, in Unseen Realm. If you look at Daniel 10, we have the supernatural prince of Persia, prince of Greece. And 
what the passage is teaching us is that there are supernatural intelligences behind these empires. Well, how would you, as a supernatural intelligence, do your job or do, you know, do these misdeeds again to enslave these populations? You know, you, what you don't need is you don't need to possess everybody. You don't have to turn everybody into flesh puppets, you know, and it's, it's not like <laughs> the exorcist or something. Mm -hmm. What you need is you need to influence the decision makers. You need to, you need to capture the minds of the people who, with power so that they will make decisions to accomplish your will for you. And so because I do think about that uh, in relation to Daniel 10, I, I, I would answer the principalities and powers the same way. You know, if I could be so trite as to say, if I were one of the principalities and powers, I'd work smart, not hard. Mm -hmm. I would want to know, what do I need to move herds? I'm not just interested in influencing one person at a time. I want to control how people think because how people think will dictate what they do. What they believe will mm -hmm. dictate how they behave and what they do. And so I'm going to look at this human activity underneath me, as it were, uh, in this you know, piece of turf and ask myself, who are the decision makers? Who influences how the masses think? And then I will pick my spots there to try to influence them in certain ways. And that will ripple out. And so I think what we need to do to combat this is we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be renewed in our minds. We need to let scripture influence the way we think. We need to not believe lies either about ourselves or about God or about Jesus you know, or just truth in general. We need to have our minds trained uh, to think coherently and biblically. I've got a bunch of uh, questions still coming in. Uh, listener named Bill said, when will Michael publish his next novel? Oh, I, I'm hoping by the end of 2020, that will be shipping on Amazon. That's the best way I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, I, I want to see it too. Okay. okay. I, I'm getting this question a lot lately. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot of fans out there. Um, another question, uh, why did God create the trees in the garden if he knew Adam and Eve were going to sin? The trees? That's what the question uh, says. You know, I think yeah, he could have created anything. I think it was just a test of obedience, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not any more un unusual or usual, you know, than anybody else here. I, you know, what was Eden? Eden is the dwelling place of God. It is meant to be the place where humans dwell and God dwells with humans. They're human, so they need sustenance. Mm -hmm. So they're going to, you know, have to eat and, you know, do things like that. They're tasked with cultivating this place and actually spreading it, you know, making the whole world, you know, like this wonderful little slice of earth here. And so they're going to need these things, both in terms of part of what they're commissioned to do and also to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest, and I know you've got questions because they're still flying in like crazy. So let me know what the questions are. We'll ask them after the break. The number to text is 877-933-2484. I hope I didn't say that too fast. I'll say it again. 877-933-2484. Again, that's just a text, and we'll get your questions on the air. Be back in a minute.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. And nice to have you back on the program, Michael. You know, I'm making progress. I'm, I'm not quite as intimidated by you as I used to be. <laughs> well, that's, that makes me feel good. <laughs> I mean, you're, good you're so smart, but you lay stuff out so beautifully for listeners and me. So I guess I so appreciate that. Um, so thank you for your work. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. And here's a question from a listener. I have a, uh, just had a conversation last night. How timely is this about angels and demons? I've got a nine-year-old son who has autism. I was quickly out of my depth. Could you direct me to scripture or books that could explain the basics of angels and demons, who they are and what they do? Yeah, the basics. I would say um, this, and your for your son who's nine with autism. I would, mm-hmm. yeah, with autism. I would say the probably the place to jump in is my little book, What Does God Want? It's for seekers or new believers. It's written, you know, very simply. And there, in the course of the first third of that, it's really a, a discipleship book. But the first third of it sort of tells the story, you know, of salvation history and you know, what the Bible's about. And in that, I seed some of this material. And so read the first third of that, and then I would I would go through supernatural, sort of cherry pick that uh, about both angels and you know the, the powers of darkness. I think that would be a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And your books are quite amazing. I've been I've read them, and I had to go through them slowly because they're like a piece of hard candy. You got to put them in your mouth and just kind of let it sit for a while. Yeah, unseen realms like that. I mean it. it you know, Unseen Realm has over a thousand reviews on Amazon, and it's still, you know, it still like shows five stars. I don't know what that actually equates to in numbers, but if you read the reviews, that's really common. Oh, I had to read this two or three times, but you know, wow, it's just changed. You know how I look at so many things, and that's okay. That's okay. It took me fifteen years to produce the thing, so you can read it two or three times. <laughs> you know, uh, here's another question. You have my permission. Oh, thank you. Another question. Uh, Donette said, "I have two sons in the military. I often pray for God's angels to protect them. This comforts me. How would you suggest I pray?" I guess you know. Well, I, I think. Oh, go ahead. Michael. I think that's legit. Mm-hmm. I think that's legit. I mean, God, God can use any means at His disposal to watch over us and steer our paths. And he does. Um, you know, I, I would always pray that again, a, a lot of this, you know, life is just life. It, it's, it's filled with hardship. You know, there, there's evil because and we've talked about this on your show before, because there are free will beings, you know, both in the supernatural and the natural world. And so we are going to suffer. We are going to encounter evil. And so I would make sure in, in addition to physical protection, you know, to just pray that whatever happens, uh, you know, to your your children, to your sons, that they process it the right way, that they trust God even even when they're going through pain, and that they won't be quick, you know, to think poorly, you know, about God's love and His intentions for their lives. Mm-hmm. Michael, can you talk a little bit about the divine council and how how is it that they are able to participate in making decisions? I mean, does, is God willing to share some of his authority with them or, or concerned about their input or how does that work? Yeah, I think we, I think that the best analogy to it is the church, you know, both the local church and the, and the, you know, the so-called universal church, because that's really, 
it's kind of a template for that. And again, I've used that term before on your show that the divine council is just a, it's a biblical term, Psalm 82, you know, Psalm 89, uh, for the heavenly host, those who are loyal uh, to the God of Israel. And God, you know, created them. They are his children in the, in the supernatural world and they partner with him. He allows them to participate in decisions. We get that in first Kings 22, 19 through 23, we get it in Daniel 7. There's a council meeting when God says it's time to judge the four beasts, you know, the four empires. We get it in Daniel 4 when a watcher that is a holy one comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, you're going to go crazy for a while and eat grass. Here's why. And he says, this is by decree of the watchers, plural. And he also says three verses later, this is by decree of the Most High. So that's an important passage because all of them are really important because there's a, symb a symbiotic relationship here. The divine council, the heavenly hosts, do not act with autonomy. They act in concert with the will of the Most High. You know, God does allow them to, you know, kick the ball down the road or make decisions or contribute, you know, to how things get done. And that's what God does with us, you know, with the church. I mean, we are his children. We're his partners here on earth. God doesn't need us. You know, he could just as well, you know, call it a, call it a game, uh, do what he wants. He's omnipotent. Uh, but instead, he has chosen to create free will beings to participate with him in the things he wants to get done. So if we think about ourselves, that God has graciously allowed us to do this thing called the Great Commission, mm -hmm. to disciple people, to accomplish this thing he wants to happen, that is to reclaim the nations, to collect people back into the family, you know, and, and has even linked this to the end of days. I mean, that's that's both a privilege and a, and a pretty awesome responsibility as well. But we are actually a good sort of analogy as to how this would work in, in the spiritual realm as well. And Michael, I think this next question will tie into what we were just talking about. The, the, the listener says, how does scripture account for the massive populations of people who have never heard of the gospel? Um, mm -hmm. Do demonic powers have ultimate accountability? If so, how does that square with human responsibility? Yeah, I, I think I think scripture, again, affirms both let's just cut to the to the question about what what about people who've never heard i mean i i think it's kind of obvious that there are people who have never heard the gospel i'm not going to dispute that uh, we don't have really expansive knowledge of, of that factor you know it's kind of like what the numbers are because there's people you know hearing the gospel every day that we'll never know about but there's this, there is this subset. You know, I think it's legit, and I always think of uh, Old Testament examples like Naaman the leper. Naaman is told very little in terms of well, he's actually not told anything at all. He has to learn it, you know, theology. Very little theology. He he, he gets cleansed of his leprosy, and, and all he really knows is that, wow, you know. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is the God of all gods, and, and I'm not going to sacrifice to any other for the rest of my life. Can I take some dirt back with me, you know, so I can <laughs> so I can attach myself, you know, to mm -hmm. to Yahweh of Israel when I do my my sacrifice? I mean, he's never going to read Torah. He's not going to get circumcised. He's not going to observe the Sabbath. He's not going to do any of this stuff. He doesn't even know about it. He doesn't have a Bible, but yet he responds correctly to the truth that God exposes him to. And honestly, the fate of people who never get the full gospel, if God looks at them and says, I gave you this much truth, 
or again, providentially or circumstantially, this is what you were exposed to and you responded well to it. And God is omniscient. He knows the person's heart. If God wants to say, I understand that and I accept you, that's God's job description. It's not mine. It's not another gospel way. You know, it's not another gospel altogether or an alternative route to heaven. It, th- this would be God's choice. So ultimately, you know, I, I leave that, again, as part of God's you know, job description. I do think God is very active and acts in many unseen ways to us that we will never perceive in a person's heart to bring things to mind, to do things that are dramatic. I just got done reading a book called uh, Dreams and Visions. It's, it's about this kind of stuff that happens in the Islamic world when there, where there are, there is no scripture. There are mm-hmm. very few Christians, and it's not just one or two Muslims who've, you know, had Jesus show up in a vision or a dream, or even like in the room, and say, you know, I'm Jesus. You know, it's, it's like a Paul experience. You know, it's time to leave Islam and follow me. It's not just two or three. It's like hundreds and hundreds of these examples, which is just. I, th- I think it's just kind of awesome, you know, that, that God, when this, the conditions are the same as the first century, you have no other way to get truth, and God takes it upon himself to give people truth, and then they spread it. Again, they become partners with him mm-hmm. in the endeavor. That stuff happens all the time. So, again, I leave these sorts of things to God because I think that's where, what Scripture demands. But we do have precedent uh, in the Old Testament for people being named as righteous. Jesus refers to Naaman and the widow of Zarephath as examples of faith when he's, when he's confronting the Pharisees. If they're good enough for Jesus, they're good enough for me, you know, and I, and I will let God decide on, on what basis, you know, he allows them into his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Michael, do you think that a lot of believers uh, have learned or have their understanding of, of angels is just from tradition, from media, from stories that have been told. I mean, when I think of the biblical description of like the cherub, cherubim, they're, they're, uh, they're not cute and cuddly. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Uh, maybe they're the bad gremlins. They're, oh know. yeah. They're, they're, they're not the soft and cuddly. But yeah. They're guarding the throne. They're not room. like my pugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they got some attitude, don't they? Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the, the reason why these descriptions are given is to convey the seriousness of sacred space, mm-hmm. where the presence of God is. This is not a, a light thing. It's not a flippant thing. This is a thing that could cost you great bodily harm or your life. You know, we actually have you know, incidences like that in Scripture. I think that's part of what's, what's being communicated. And I think your sense of this is, is kind of correct. I think we have sort of a melting pot of... You know, how we wind up with the thoughts we have about angels. I think that church tradition does play a significant part. I mean, people do read read their Bible and they pick up things, so that, you know, that that certainly is part of it. They, you know, but I think we have to admit too that pop culture, you know, is very powerful and communicates certain ideas. Sometimes they hit the nail on the head. Sometimes they're like, where in the world did they get that idea? And you wonder, is that deliberate or are they just like clueless? Um, so I think it's just sort of a hodgepodge. Uh, that the average person would sort of have in their head about angels and, and demons and whatnot. I don't know if I will say this uh, smartly, but if you think of cherubim and you think of them as these these very tough, Im- imposing spiritual angelic creatures guarding the holy space, sorry, but that's kind of a cool image. I mean, I, I would like to think that it is. those are the angels that I want on Team Bill when I'm walking uh, down a dark what... alley at night. 
you know, this, you know, I, I don't recommend Star Wars as <laughs> your, your gateway to, but the, in the, in one of the more uh, recent Star Wars, there's, there's this, uh, there's this throne room scene where the, the the big evil guy is surrounded by you know they're they're all dressed in red you know these security forces and it's like they're not moving they don't even have to move it's like you you see one and you know that okay I I just stop right here <laughs> like uh, they they just look like they're it's gonna hurt no matter what <laughs> what comes out of your mouth right. I mean, yeah. they just give you that that impression that. I, I hope this is quick because if it's not, it's going to really hurt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hysterical. All right, Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. We're going to take a short break. If you have a question, let us know. I'll ask it on your behalf, 877-933-2484. That's our text number, 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I am so glad to be talking to Dr. Michael Heiser. I know questions are coming in like nutso, which is great. Let us know if you have a question, 877-93-FAITH, about uh, angels, demons, anything in the spiritual realm. We would love to uh, get your question on the air. Here's a question, Michael. In Acts 19, there were Jews going out getting rid of demons. The demons spoke and said they did not uh, know them, only Jesus and Paul. How can we do spiritual war- warfare effectively? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting account because if you remember when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, like I'm, I, I get the feeling that that like happened every day. <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. He, you know, and they accuse him of of you know having a devil. You know, and he says, well. Hey, you know, you you guys, you know, cast out uh, devils, you know, like, do you have devils too to do that? You know, he, he more or less taunts them with that. There, there are serious uh, Jewish exorcism traditions in the centuries leading up to uh, the New Testament era. So if, if you look at this academically, you know, and you look at scholarly studies of this, what you'll find in the literature is that, yes, you know, Jews were able to cast out demons when they, they did so you know, in the name of the Most High, in the name of the God of Israel. And the same goes, you know, in this instance in, in Acts 19. What was different about what Jesus did was that he never appealed to a higher power. I mean, if you look at the exorcism accounts, it is the thing that sets his exorcism accounts in the New Testament apart from all others, with, even within the, what we'll call the, the God-fearing Jewish tradition. They had to appeal to a higher power to do this. Jesus doesn't. He is the higher power. You know, and, and so I think, you know, we're not supposed to solicit, you know, this kind of, you know, activity. We're not supposed to be like, you know, I, I'm spiritual Rambo now because I'm a believer. I, you know, where's the next demon that I can get into it with? But when we do have these sorts of things, and I've never had one personally, but I have, I've have friends that, again, have had this occasionally uh, happen to them. It's really the only means we can do. I, I would advise people, look, you know, you, you, you imitate Michael, okay? Michael rebukes, you know, the devil in the name of, you know, in God's name, in the Lord's name. He doesn't take that authority to himself. So be careful of doing that. You appeal to the correct authority. And then just generally, 
I think the most effective way to confront spiritual evil is to speak truth to it. Uh, do not embrace the lies that come out of a person you know, who might be possessed. Speak truth to lies. And the truth is that the devil has no legitimate authority over any member of the kingdom of God. The truth is that if, if someone's not in the kingdom of God yet, God does love them and wants them in. The principalities and powers have had their authority initially given by God at Babel, and then they become corrupt with that authority. That has been removed and nullified. This is why Paul, in half a dozen passages, links the ascension and the resurrection with the nullification, the stripping away of the authority of the principalities and powers. They no longer have any status to claim anybody for their own power and authority and, and, and purpose. And I think that that's what we have to emphasize. You, you speak truth to demonic powers, you speak truth you know, to people who are demonized because that's what they need. Okay, they don't need a light show. They don't need the shouting match. What they need is they need their mind to be influenced by and conformed with truth. And so this is, again, I, I recommend that to people because, you know, again, the people that I know that have actually uh, had these sorts of engagements, that's the thing that has been most effective. You appeal to the correct authority. You don't waver. You never claim authority for yourself. And you speak truth to lies. Fantastic. I just want to stand up and cheer right now. That's such good news. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it, I mean, there, there's a lot going on in these sorts of episodes that is pretty subtle, you know, about the messaging really on both sides. Um, you know, like when Jesus goes into Gentile territory and he confronts Legion and, and there are a couple of these where these exorcism episodes where he's on Gentile turf and there's some where he's on Jewish turf and he, you know, the, the demons, the powers that are possessing people refer to Jesus in different ways. It's distinct. If, you're on, if they're on Jewish territory, they refer to him as the son of David. If they're outside, they refer to him as the son of the Most High. Be, and why the Most High? Because it's the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. They know that their authority has been, you know, was lent to them. And now that the king has shown up, they're in trouble. <laughs> you know? The rent is coming due. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. they, they know, you know what's going on here. Yeah. And so e even in the language that's used, there's a distinction drawn uh, in the narrative uh, on the part of uh, the powers of darkness because they, they know they're operating from the, the correct worldview. They know what's going on. Yeah. Well, Michael, that ties into my, my wingman, Terry. He's got a question, which is pretty much just what you stated, talking about there's three different passages give, and three distinct names to describe the devil. In Matthew 4.10, Jesus addresses the devil as Satan when he rebukes him. And then in Mark 3.22, they accuse Jesus of being possessed by uh, Beelze Beelzebul. Do I say that right? Mm -hmm. And in 2 Corinthians 6.15, Paul uses the name uh, Belial in stark contrast with Christ. Are all these yeah. names identifying the same devil? Or could yes, they be they were, indicating three separate demonic entities? They were all used in Second Temple era literature, again, the, the first few centuries leading up to the New Testament era. And the New Testament era is part of what scholars call the Second Temple period. Uh, it's only after the temple gets destroyed that we're out of the Second Temple period. So when Jesus is around, we're, we're still in that period. All of those terms, and there are others, Mastema is another one mm. um, that shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're, they're all used of the perceived leader of darkness um, that opposes God. 
So yeah, it, it, again, if you looked in the literature, you're going to draw the conclusion that this is all, these are all labels. They all have, you know, nuanced meanings, but they're all labels for the same uh, entity, the, the great you know, chief adversary. Mm-hmm. Another question from a listener named Anne. I've been meditating on Matthew 10, 1 lately. As Jesus sent out his, the disciples, he gave them the authority to heal the sick, cast out demons, etc. I used to think that it was a spiritual gift. Do we pray and ask for the authority to do that? Yeah, I, I think, again, he loans us the authority to do this. In other words, we when we're engaged... We have to, I'm going to go back to what I, what I said a few minutes ago. We have to remember from whence, you know, who has the real authority because it's lent to us. We, we don't act in autonomy. We don't appeal to anything else other than, you know, the Lord himself, because this is the one who grants this ability. I, you, you know, if you look at um, the spiritual gift passages, this really isn't the sort of thing that gets lumped in with that. And so scholars, you know, like to make a distinction here between uh, the gifts, you know, in the epistles and things like this. But I, I, I tend to th- try to make things as simple as I can. And it's like, look, regardless of what, you know, bucket, you know, you, you put these things in, whether they're called a spiritual gift or not, the fact is that Jesus does give, you know, those who are his disciples, who are sent out into the world to disciple people. He gives them the authority, again, to confront evil in this manner. But again, we have to be careful. We have to, we have to use the models that were given when this actually happens in the New Testament. And it's not that we are the thing that should threaten a demon. Okay, the Lord is the thing who should threaten the demon. Mm-hmm. And we have to remind the, 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 the entity that it's in his name that we are here, and you know, standing in the gap, as it were, so that we're clear about how we're thinking about what's happening in ourselves. And we don't drift over into thinking too highly of ourselves in, in these kinds of engagements. Mm-hmm. Listener named JC said, is it true that only cherubim have wings and angels do not? Yeah, cherubim and seraphim get winged descriptions because that was the... That was the iconography used, again, for throne guardians, supernatural throne guardians. And so biblical writers would use this so that the image was clear in the mind of the hearer or the reader. That, you know, these, we have members of the heavenly host that perform this duty. This is their task to protect sacred space. Um, angels are never described as having wings. So what, what happens, again, this is one of the vocabulary disconnections, is we... Because of you know tradition and just in some cases it's just because we're we're not thinking about uh, distinctions in terminology. We tend to sort of smash all those things together. Cherubim, seraphim, they're all angels. You know, we even though if we actually if, if I if we did a sword drill here or, or a Bible software drill, I said, hey, give me all the verses where either cherub or seraph occurs in the same verse as angel, the results would be zero. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a quick search. You yeah. know, you, you shouldn't get the little, uh, you know, hourglass of death, you know, when, <laughs> when you're searching for that in your software. Uh, it, so that the, the terms do not overlap and it's because they're functional. They're just different functions that any given member of the heavenly host can be tasked with something. And so, you know, biblical writers try to try to, you know, use terminology to, to give us a clue as to what the members of the heavenly host actually do, you know, in the Lord's service. Mm-hmm. Michael, we have a couple minutes left, and I'm sorry we're running out of time already, but 
Um, the angel of the Lord, and every, every time that is, appears in Scripture, it always gives me chills because this is, uh, an actu- this is an angel that is actual God, but it's also an angel sent by God. Is it, do I have that right? Yeah, it's, it's the same struggle that we have, you know, in, in New Testament, especially the Gospels, you know, language about Jesus, where Jesus is affirmed in various ways uh, as God, but yet, you know, he'll talk about how the Lord sent him. Well, yeah, it, it's Jesus is God, but he's, you know, he, we wouldn't refer to him as the Father. He's the Son. You know, there, there are these different, different ways of expressing a relationship and a distinction but yet their sameness is also affirmed. That's what you get in the Old Testament with the angel of the Lord. I mean, there are some very clear passages. You know, Genesis 31, you know, the angel says, I am the God of Bethel. I mean, I don't know how much clearer that can be. Mm-hmm. You know, and scholars will, will quibble and say, well, that, that's the messenger was supposed to pretend, you know, he's the one who sent him. Well, that, that's great, but that doesn't work in Genesis 48. Yeah. Where, in, you know, in Jacob's prayer, you know, that may the God who did this, may the God who did that, may the angel... And then the, the verb is singular, may he bless the boys. It's not may they, it's yeah. may he. Michael, so the angel's not saying anything there. Yeah. It's Jacob. Thank you so much for doing the show. I would recommend all listeners to go to drmsh.com. That's Michael's website. And if you're looking for a great present that fits in a stocking, any one of his books would do just fine. Michael, have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I'm always looking forward to speaking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me back. All right. Have a wonderful holiday, and thanks again. You too. Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you. All right, we're going to take a little break. We've got uh, hour two just ahead. Jason Stonehouse is going to be with me. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.